song. Never get tired of one. Love that song. Tonight, um, we are going to take a look at a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. You might want to turn to that passage. It is one I'm sure that is uh, fairly well known to you. Um, had a, a rather detailed, um, well, sorry to say commentary, and I guess that's exactly what I put it, commentary and question turned in for a suggestion about this passage. So I want to look at it, and I want to consider, first of all, what is taught in 2 Peter 1, in, in verses 5 through 8. And uh, I'm going to try my best not to really take up time with the, looking at the context, although I think it's better understood if we understand it in context and so forth, I'm going to try not to do that, because I want to get to a point that really is made, and uh, something that I kind of see and read about and have for some time now. Um, Maybe the first time I ever encountered something like this, jumping ahead a little bit, was in a way back years ago in school and a class I had on situation ethics, but I'll get into that as I get into it, but, or as I go on into the, the lesson. But if you'll look with me at Second Peter chapter 1, and let's read together just verses 5 through 8. You'll notice he starts off by saying, in addition or in besides this, so it very much goes with the previous verses. But he says, and I'll read the King James, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, or love, of course. For if these things be in you, verse 8, and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's quite a debate going on, and I'm sure you're aware of it. Quite a debate that is going on even within the Lord's church over the necessity, the absolute necessity of doctrine, of knowledge. Um, I would say even many of our brethren, if they were, would have heard some of the lessons that I've preached in the last two or three lessons, some of the lessons Wes has preached recently, they would probably shake their head and say, these are two preachers that are bound up in tradition and all of this kind of thing, old-fashioned etc., um, etc. Et There's quite a debate that's going on, and because our brethren have been influenced greatly by some brethren, um, some of whom I know personally even, but who in turn were influenced by the ecumenical movement and so forth and so on. I'll mention some of that along the way, but first of all, I just want to go to the Bible and talk a little bit about what Peter is actually saying. Now, Peter is talking about an individual, exactly what I was saying this morning. You will notice if you go back and read these verses, he is talking about one who is sanctified through the truth. Set apart. God has set him apart. He has been set apart by the truth. He belongs to God. And now Peter is looking at the idea of his life as a Christian and the fruitfulness of that, the reward of that, what that leads to if one lives and leads such a life. We have been called to do that. God means for all Christians to progress to ultimately to Judgment Day and to receive all the glory. Just like Jesus prayed in John 17, the glory that goes with that, the reward that goes with that, etc. That's what God has designed for us. But if we're going to reach that, if we're going to have that, then we're going to have to work hard. It is not something that's just going to simply come. It's not that you're going to you know, just somehow stumble into it. Uh, I hate phrases, and I'll just be honest with you. Just say it like that. People that use phrases like, I don't care you know, how I make it, if I just make it by the skin of my teeth, as long as I make it. Um, I don't need a mansion. 
just give me a, a back room somewhere. And the reason that I hate it is because I think people have the idea that somehow there are these more than holy Christians. There are these ones that are at the front of the line, these ones that God really favors and really loves, and they're going to get all the rewards that they're due. And I know I'm not one of those. Uh, no matter how hard I try, I'm not one of those. And so if I make it, I'm going to quote, unquote, barely make it. That is so foreign to the New Testament idea. The New Testament idea is if you do what God says you are to do, and you can do that, if you do that, then you are going to make it equally with everyone else. You're not going to scrape by. You're not going to get in by the skin of your teeth. You're not going to have a back room in somebody else's mansion. That you will be in Jesus Christ, and you, together with every other Christian that makes it that day, will be wholly unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. But you've got to work. You can't just say, you know, you can't just have this idea. And I think sometimes this idea excuses people. It's okay if I don't, you know, kind of put forth 100% effort. If I just, you know, give a little bit of effort, then it's okay because I'm not looking to be one of those frontline, most rewarded Christians. Well, Peter is saying you've got to really work at it. And that doesn't mean, you know, and I'm not trying to contradict what I said this morning. I don't believe in the balance. I think if, if there were a balance, would always weigh one sin would weigh us down, and there's nothing you could do to make up for it. But at the same time, I do believe that God expects best of effort. A best of effort can even include weaknesses. You know, if I'm not capable right now, and I'm not able right now, if I'm immature in the faith, etc., giving my best may not be what somebody else is doing when they give their best at a different situation of their Christian life. But it is my best. And I think that's what God is saying. So read again verse 5 and this language that says, Besides this, giving all diligence, the King James says, add to your, and then it lists these things. You may notice if you pick up translations, that's translated literally all over the place. Because it's hard to translate in English. There are a couple of terms that are used here. The first term, the idea of the giving all diligence, is easier to translate than the add to, believe it or not. But really what he's saying is, and we will get into it in the latter part of the lesson, really what he is talking about is you, you have some, or you are at a place, now increase it by, and having done that, continue to do Make, that will make more sense when I get to the end of it. Let's just talk about what he's talking what he's saying you should do, whatever it is he's saying you should do with it, what he's saying. And let's run through the list very quickly. So if you notice on your outlines, giving all diligence means to work hard, as hard as you can. And the reason that I translate it like that is because your amount of effort may be different from, and will be from somebody else's. In fact, probably every one of us in here has a different measurement by God because only God and perhaps we ourselves know how hard we can. But work as hard as you can. Make every effort, some translations say. Give earnestness, some translations say. Um, enthusiastically do this. Now when you add all those ideas, you begin to see what the original term is really saying. It is talking about really a complete effort on your part. I'm really going to do what I, as much as I can do. And that's my idea. Then he says add to. You'll 
notice I put on your outlines, the word add to means, and, and really this is not a full translation of it, but it's the idea of supply, or supplement, or complement, but supplement, furnish. Some translations say equip. I didn't put that on there. Provide. It is a term that really means, you, if I had to describe it, it's like you have a basket of Christianity. And the idea is, here's my basket of Christianity with all that I'm doing and all I'm capable of doing and all of that kind of thing, and stuff some more in the basket. And really the idea is, stuff even more than the basket carries. Have that goal in mind. I don't want to just do enough kindness, for example, to get by. I want to be as kind as kind can be. I want to be as loving as loving can be. And so it's that idea. Here's my basket of Christianity. Let me stuff in or tuck in more. That literally is the idea. So what are we saying? With what in my life? Well, my faith. And when we talk about faith here, it's not simple belief. When you look at the way faith is used in the New Testament, there are times when someone is said to have faith or to believe, and it's the first time they ever believe. But most of the time the word is used, it is used for Christians And it is used for Christians whose faith, quote-unquote, is literally taking this, and if I had to say it in such a way, literally taking this and putting it in here, or in here. It's all of it. It's not just belief that Jesus died on the cross, for example, or belief that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's all of it. It's everything that I know, and it's everything I don't know. Because it is everything God has to say. So when you look at passages like, go over to Romans 1 and verse 17. And you start in verse 16, you see he's talking about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation. Everyone that believes, there's a cognate form of this word. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein, therein the gospel, within the gospel, there is this righteousness And righteousness is rightness, or doing what's right. And this righteousness that comes to us, and you'll notice the ellipsis there, from faith to faith. And literally in the original, what you would do with that is put, like we would do, three dots after it. Because it means from faith to faith, from faith to faith, from faith to faith, from faith to faith, and that's a lifestyle. So it means that I'm doing what's right based on what I know. If I was baptized last night, I probably don't know a whole lot. But I do what I know. And as I grow in that faith, when I come to understand more and more the faith of Jesus Christ and everything it means, and not just points, because that's where we start. I learn this point, I go over here and learn that point, and I go over here and learn that point. But then I begin to learn how the whole thing comes together as the faith. That's what he speaks of. Faith comes by hearing. Wes talked about this at Wendy's the other night. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. It's something that I take the Word of God and I put it inside me, and now I believe it. I'm a living, walking person of faith because the Word of God is inside me. Obviously, it begins, Galatians 3. We are all children of God by faith that is in Christ Jesus. And it is that corporate amount of teaching from the New Testament as opposed, in Galatians 3, to the Old Testament. Remember, we were the law was our schoolmaster that brought us unto Christ. Being brought to Christ is the same as being brought to the faith. But after that faith came, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. So we're all children of God by faith, by the faith in Christ Jesus. 
Now add to that, supply your faith with that, supplement your faith with virtue. It's not enough simply to know or to believe. We might believe something, but never act on it. The devils believe. They have faith in that sense. They believe and they tremble even. They respond to what they know. What do they know? They know God's real. They know Jesus is someday coming back. They know there is a judgment day. They've already been told that. They knew exactly that there was a day and time. They even said it to Jesus at one point, if you remember. Have you come to torment us before the time? But the only response they give is to tremble. They're scared. Much like the person maybe down the road that really believes, and he knows that he's going to die, or she's going to die, and they know there's a judgment day, and the only thing that really does is make them afraid and frightened when they think about it. And so they don't want to think about it. I don't think about that. You know? And that's literally what people do. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about that. And maybe they go off and do something so that they don't have to think about it. So add virtue to your faith. Respond to it. And so when you look at this term virtue, and you'll notice I put down here, it is moral goodness, someone would say, or moral excellence. It is graciousness. It's kind of like if you look at Philippians chapter 4 when Paul used the same term in verse 8. And he starts talking about all those things there. You know, if there's anything lovely and anything of good report, if there be anything virtuous, he would go. Now we understand that. We understand what virtue, you know, virtue is. We understand, you know, patience is a virtue is a common saying. But virtue is the right way of doing things and the right way of thinking about things. And so here, what Peter is saying is, act on, respond to your faith. If you believe, let's just make it simple. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you, and that you are a Christian because of that, then do something about it. Do something in a better way than most people would do. If somebody, you know, is, is unkind to you, be kind back. React in a way they would not react. Most people would not. You know, if you see something that needs to be done, just a little tiny deed that needs to be done. You know, you're walking through the parking lot and you see a little old lady like I did the other day at Costco and she's struggling with her groceries. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of effort to say, ma'am, do you need some help getting that out of the cart into your trunk? You can't believe the reaction you get. I mean, some people look at you like, what planet did you just drop off of, you know? But it doesn't take a lot. Do something in response to your faith. Be morally excellent. Maybe someone says, hey, let's do this bad thing. And you say, no. I, I don't want to do that. You don't have to go into a sermon about it. You don't have to give you know, a long 30-minute explanation of why you don't do so and so. Just don't do it. Because you know it's not right. Moral excellence. Add to your virtue knowledge. I don't know everything. Now, I've been at this trying to know for 40 years, and I know that I don't know everything. In fact, sometimes I'm amazed at things I miss. Wes taught a point that was incredible. I wish everybody here could have been at Wendy's Thursday night. You can ask him about it. But he taught a point from John 13. I had never thought about it. I had never read anybody that talked about it. I thought, man, that's fantastic. You learn all the time. Add to your virtue knowledge. You know, you, you respond on what you know, but if you never learn more, if you never gain any more facts, if you don't have any more knowledge, there's a limited amount of response you can give because you just simply don't know. And, of course, he's talking about here 
the idea of knowledge, facts. And it's just a basic word for knowledge. Go back to verse 3 in 2 Peter 1. You can see the use here. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he has. We can carry it around in one book. He's given us all things, notice, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. You turn the page over and go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Grow in God's favor. Well, that's coupled with growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, once you do that, you, you've, got, you've got your faith, you've got your virtue, you've got your knowledge, etc. You're going to begin as a Christian, and I think you really begin, most of us, uh, maybe all of us, we start applying self-control from the moment we come up out of the water. Because we, and, it, and it's simple. We, maybe we did such and such before. You know, Now we've got a temptation. And Satan is going to make sure that happens. I mean, if you struggle with something before, just because you were baptized today, doesn't mean Satan is going to let you off the hook. Oh, as a matter of fact, you're going to face the temptation. And so when you face the temptation, you begin to say no. You begin to exercise self-control, or the King James says temperance here. But it really is the word, more than the idea of self-restraint or self-control, it really is a word that means continuance. And I like to think of it like that. To me, and it may not help you at all, but it helps me, and I suspect it would help some people in here. To me, there is a very real sense in being able to check days off. I used to do this thing. I have not done this thing for three days. I have not done this thing for six weeks. I have not done this thing for a year. There's something psychological that goes on the longer you continue in restraining yourself. Finally, you get to the point that you are that person. I don't do this. Now, does that mean that I couldn't be tempted? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that there are situations that come along that, you know, I maybe look at and I say, hmm, boy, you know? No, it doesn't mean that. But there is something about, you know, I've been denying this and restraining myself for ten years. I'm not messing up now. And you almost get into a debate with yourself, maybe with Satan. It's like, no, if I could not do this for 25 years or 40 years or whatever, I don't have to do it now. I'm not going to. It's the idea of just continuing in that self-control. He says patience, which is a word that is very closely akin. Sometimes the word that's translated temperance is translated patience. But here the idea is more not just continuance, and you'll notice that I put it on there on the outline, the idea of continence and then continuance with patience because they're very closely akin. But here's the difference. Self-restraint can just be that I say no to certain things. Now, I never use drugs, and there are very few sins that I never committed, so don't pat me on the back for that, but I never did. For me to restrain from using drugs is not that big a deal. I never did it. Now, on the other hand, there were things, plenty of things I did. I talk about it from the pulpit, so you guys know that. For me to restrain from those things is a big deal. It's hard. And some of those things, for years, it went on. Now, here's the difference in the two terms. The temperance is just simple self-restraint, simple self-control. I don't do that. I won't do that. I never did that. I will not do that. Or I haven't done that for X amount of years, and I won't do that. Patience is different. 
Patience has to do, this word for patience has to do with endurance. And it can be because someone's persecuting you, or it can be because you are tempted and you're, as we say, fighting it. And the idea here is to endure the fight. The idea here is endure the suffering that is going to go with it. That you really, you know, if a person says to me, do you do so and so? No. I've had people that actually laugh and say, you mean you don't want to do that? I say, no, I didn't say that. I did not say I never want to do that. There's a total difference in what you do not do and what you don't want to do. This word has to do with what you will not do, what you do not want to do, but it costs you. You are having to sacrifice. You are having to suffer. You are having to pay a price because you will not do this thing that is wrong. Or because you will continue to do this thing that's right that costs you. That's the difference in the two terms. Now he says, add to, supply, equip, or whatever your faith with godliness. All of those things together really are living a Christ-like life. It is the idea of godliness. It is the idea, and I want to go over and read a couple of verses. Go with me to 1 Timothy. And let's just start in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here as Paul uses this word godliness in the, in the book of 1 Timothy. Now, we've been studying this in Friday nights downstairs, but you'll see this word crop up a number of times in Paul's writings to Timothy. So start in chapter 2 and verse 2. Now, this is one where he's talking about prayer. And he, said, he of course, is telling, them to, you know, telling Timothy to pray for in, you know, all these different things. And he says, verse 2, For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet notice that, and peaceable life in all godliness, and the King James says honesty, or honorableness is the idea. Now when I think about that, practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, we heard today in a prayer, and we hear from time to time of all the unrest going on in our country. A lot of rioting in the streets, a lot of you know, that's not, you know, that's not my president, or I don't, you know, that congressman's from my district, but I don't respect them, or whatever it might be. We hear all of that. And yet what we hear God saying to us, I read a passage in Titus 3 this morning, it says obey. Those that are in the government, those that are in power, etc., obey them. And there were a lot of people when Paul, for example, wrote those things that were in government that weren't very respectable. And yet, that's your job as a Christian. But more than that. Not just obey, but pray. Why are you praying? Why would I pray for somebody I don't really believe in, I don't really respect, I don't like, I don't support his policies or whatever? Why would I pray? You pray because of what power government is in. They're in such a position that if the wrong decisions are made, it can cost me. It can cost you. And I don't mean it costs us money out of, our, out of our pocket. It costs us that, yes. But way more than that, it can cost me the freedom to do what God wants me to do. And what I mean by that is this. I will still have to do it. You know, if a law were passed today that says you cannot assemble on the first day of the week, you know, Chris, no, no more churches, no more coming together, then we'd have to do what Brethren did 2,000 years ago. And what some brethren in parts of the world are having to do today. We'd have to sneak down somewhere and meet because we're commanded to assemble together. And I don't doubt that there are people in this room that would do that. 
And there are people in this room that would do that if they knew on the way they might be met with a machine gun. It can happen. We think it can't. But it can't. And we know that. Deep down inside, we know that. And so he is saying, pray. But notice, not just to the end that my taxes go down or I get this benefit or I get that benefit from the government. Not just for that. But that I can lead a quiet and peaceable life. That I can lead a life and live a life in all godliness. It is a blessing. I've heard different ones praying, both here and and, and at home this afternoon, praying for the freedom that we have and being thankful for what we have in this country and how much better we have it than so many places. I can be a godly person in this country. Yeah, I might get some strange looks sometimes. I might get some people that don't like it sometimes. I might get some people even tell me, would you just shut up sometime? But I can live a godly life. I'm allowed to do that. I'm free to do that right now. I am free. doesn't mean I'll always have that freedom. And if Christians are not praying that and really diligently praying that, why should we be granted that freedom in the future? Godliness. Living like God wants you. Being like God. Doing what Christ would do. That's what we can do. Back when, a few weeks ago when I had the question and answer on the, the uh, prejudice. And I was talking about, you know, someone asked the question, what can you do? And I, I, I loved the question. It was a great question. And I said something like, you know, let's just take a simple story in the Bible, the, the Good Samaritan. You know, you are free right now. You really are free to go out there and to choose to help somebody, maybe that's not of your race, not of your social standing, etc. When you see someone in need, you are really free to roll up your sleeves and go to work like the Good Samaritan and do that. Montel and I were talking about that story the other day. And we were talking about what's not in the story. And I know it's a parable, okay, so it wasn't meant to be a relation of history. It's a parable, but you know what you don't see in that story? I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. I mean, you see the Samaritan, and to the Jews, the Samaritans were those dirty, filthy, lower people, you know. And you see the guy beat up, we don't know what he was, but we assume he was a Jew because of the way the story unfolds. Beat up and robbed. And we see the elite religious people, don't we? We see the priest and the Levite, you know, passing by on the other side. We see all that. And we see the Samaritan, you know, taking the guy and and cleaning him up and, you know... Uh, bandaging him and all of that, and we see him take him to the inn and tell the guy, you know, I'll pay you more if it costs more. But you know what we don't see in that? We never see the beat-up guy's reaction. And we were talking about this the other day, and what we were talking about was this. We don't do what we do for the gratitude or whatever we get out of people. I hear people sometimes say, well, I would help so-and-so, but you know how they are. That's a very prejudiced statement in itself. But you know how they are. They're not grateful. They won't, you know, they're not people who will turn back good to you because you do good to them. Good Samaritan doesn't even address that. And the only reason that I think it doesn't is because it doesn't matter, does it? If Jesus came upon the man beaten and robbed and laying there bleeding, he would help. Now, if the guy was ungrateful... He might rebuke him after it was all over. But he would help. Be God. That's the idea. Do what the Lord would do. Go back with me to 2 Peter 1. You see the last couple of terms here. 
Add to all of that, supply your faith in all of that, with brotherly kindness. Now, I put on your, your outlines, brotherly love. Literally, I don't know if I left this on the outline or not, but literally the word means Philadelphia. I mean, the word is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, we all know, is the city of brotherly love. But here's what it literally means. It is a term in the original for friend. It's a term for someone who's close to you. Someone you feel affection for. The different words in the original language for love, and this one has to do with the warm, gushy feeling that we have for people. You know, you just, you feel something towards somebody. That's what we're talking about with this word. And you add that. You, you feel that toward people. You're not a cold-hearted individual that has no feelings for other people. God is certainly not teaching us to be that. But you do have those feelings for people. And it is the idea of, of showing you. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. It is a feeling that I have for my brother, which translates to how I would treat my brother. So we see this in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm just going to read a section of this. But this is where he says, you love each other. Verse 1, abound more and more. Drop down with me to verse, uh, oh, verse 7. Or maybe I should start at verse 4. But you see that he is talking about possessing your vessel. I think he speaks of your body as a Christian. In sanctification and honor. And not in the lust of concupiscence. That's very selfish. You know, when you exercise on your lust, I want this, I, I like this, I love doing this, or whatever, and you just do it. And sometimes you use other people to fulfill your desires. It's very selfish. Very self-centered. Because what it really says is, I don't care enough about you not to use you. I just satisfy myself. But Christians don't. And so Christians are not living their lives like that. And so as it goes on to say in verse 6, that no man go beyond and notice, defraud or cheat his brother in any matter. A lot of people have looked at this passage and said, you know, here's a typical situation of what that might be. Let's say that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm dating a girl. Let's say I'm dating a girl as a member of the church. And I know her father, and I've grown up with her father, and I like her father, and I feel good about her father and mother, you know. We're friends, and all of this kind of thing. And now I've gone over, and I've asked if I could take his daughter out. And he's, yes, you can, and all of that. And then what I do is I take her out, and I try to get her in the back seat. That is not love for my brother. It's cheating him out of something. It's defrauding him of something. And so he says here that you don't go beyond, and, and we can all kinds of scenarios. Of doing business with a brother and cheating them because you can get away with it. I know stories where there are brethren in business who have cheated other brethren because they knew that those brethren did not believe in going to law against them. I, you know, beyond wrong, that's just sick, personally. Don't go beyond and defraud a brother. And as it goes on, God has not called us, verse 7, unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises you know, looks down on, disregard, doesn't just disregard man, but God, who's given unto us His Holy Spirit. Now verse 9, as touching brotherly love. The word is not your normal word. It's this Philadelphia. It's affection that you feel for someone else. You need not that I write to you. You yourselves are taught of God to love one another. When we look at that passage and, and others like it, God is saying it is natural and right to feel love for people that are close to you. Your brothers, your you know, your friends. Well, treat them like you love them. 
do toward them and act with them and interact with them as though you love them, is the idea. Now finally, if you look at 2 Peter 1, he says, add to the brotherly kindness. King James says, charity. The word is love, and most of your translations will say love. Well, this is the usual word for love. It's sometimes called, and I think it's a misnomer, because the Bible never refers to it like this, but it's called Christian love. If you've ever seen anything, any kind of religious organization called agape something, it's agape, is the idea. And this word is more action than feeling. I want you to think about that for a moment. It is right to feel. Okay, I should have a, 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 an affection for my brethren. I should have an affection for you know good people. I should feel something toward people, and I should act on it. We just saw that in First Thessalonians 4. But there are other people I have no warm, fuzzy feelings for. Them. You know, if I threw out names like Hitler, Saddam Hussein, you know, Osama bin Laden, there's no warm, fuzzy feeling there for people like that. If I said, you know, so-and-so is a child molester, raped this seven-year-old child. I mean, on the Internet a couple of weeks ago, some sick situation where a father and his friend raped a, a toddler, his daughter. There is no warm, fuzzy feeling for people like that. I don't have good, deep, warm feelings for those people, and I'm not commanded to. You will never find in the Bible where God tells you have that kind of warm feeling for that kind of individual. But he does command love. But the love is more action. It is and has been translated, for example, by lexicographers as an active goodwill. Which means I want to do good for people. And it's active. I do good for people. And I do good for people even when they don't deserve it, is the idea. It's the word, for example, in Matthew 22, in verse 37, when Jesus talks about the great commandments. The first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Not warm, fuzzy feeling. We gain that. We come to have that, I believe, as we come to know God. But we're commanded to do good toward God in response to what God has done. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor. The guy down the street that he's always got a gripe and a complaint, never a good thing to say, but at the same time, you know, he's my neighbor. And, you know, I walk down the sidewalk and I see him. The guy has never spoken to me if it wasn't to say, could you, you know, get your car out from in front of my house or whatever it might be. When I meet that guy, how do I act? What does God command me to do? Have a warm, fuzzy feeling? <laughs> he doesn't command me to do that. But he does command me to love him. For example, he commands me to say hello without a scowl on my face. Or without saying, sir, bag, get out of my way. You know, He commands me to love him. So when you see phrases like, love your enemies, it's not warm fuzzy, it's have an act of goodwill toward your enemies. Always be willing to do good toward someone. You never know when one of them might actually respond. You know, interestingly enough, if you went over to Ephesians 5 and verse 25, husbands, love your wives. I've had, I don't know how many people look back at me and say, you don't know my wife. I don't have to. Because God is not commanding even a husband to have a warm, fuzzy feeling toward his wife. It's the same active goodwill. I've got responsibilities to my wife. I married her. I made a covenant with her before God. I owe her to fulfill that covenant. It really doesn't matter how I feel about it. 
The idea of loving is an act of goodwill. Now, having said all that, and I know that all those terms, you know that. I haven't said anything tonight that probably anybody in here doesn't know. So you know all of that. So what, and the question was, okay, we got all of this. So how do we view this? Because it seems to be, as though Peter is saying, it seems to be, it looks like, Peter is saying, progress, get higher and higher and higher, where faith is on the bottom end of the spectrum, or the ladder, or the progression, or whatever, and love is at the top. And so we kind of progress. And that really has been a popular idea. So if you notice on your outline, I put down two predominant views of this passage. One was what I call, it's just my language of trying to explain what people believe, an incremental progression to a higher state. Okay, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, you start with a basic faith. You start with your simple faith. I believe in Jesus. Let's just start there. A basic, simple faith, an acceptance of Christ. I'm a Christian. Okay? That acceptance, you know, to the world might be just, I believe. We understand you've got to be baptized. But here I am with my simple acceptance of Jesus, my simple obedience, my simple belief in Jesus. Now I'm going to progress to higher and higher states. And they kind of picture this idea of a person who starts out, kind of wipe the slate clean, all he knows, all he believes is, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to be a Christian. So he adds to that virtue, which means what? Well, it means doing the good things. And really, I think you're born, a lot of this is just natural. Oh, we know that. We have, you know, I, we were talking about, Montel and I were talking about this, and we were saying, you know, a child is born to tell the truth. They tell the truth. I mean, well, they're brutal in it sometimes. You know, I've had little toddlers walk up to me a few years ago and said, boy, you're fat. You know, they're brutal, but they're truthful. Now, at the same time, we learn to lie. Maybe it starts with that. You know, mom slaps a little kid on the hand and says, you don't say that. You know, and they tell them how to, to lie. And they teach them to lie. There are times to lie and all of this kind of thing. But... We start out with a simple faith, and we want to do good things. So we know a lot of things to do that are good. You know, tell the truth, don't steal, all that kind of thing. And so we add that. That's one of the first steps that we take, is doing the good things we know. But then we start reading our Bible, somebody says. We read the Bible, and we learn some things. We learn some things we never knew before. And now we're a little bit further along. And then we add to that the temperance, you know, the self-control. Remember the two differences in the terms? You know, I restrain myself from certain things, other things I fight. And a lot of Christians get bogged down, these people will say, get bogged down in that step and really never progress past that. They spend the rest of their life fighting the battle. But if you do fight the battle and you kind of move past that where you put some things down in your life that need to be put down, you know, you defeat the enemies, the, the sins and so forth, now you move to a higher state. And notice the higher state is godliness. Now you're not just that person fighting the battle, focusing on the negative all the time of what you shouldn't do and you're having to fight to not do it. Now you're a person that is living really like Christ. And you're going around, and they picture this idea of, you know, Jesus going around, doing good where he saw it needed, teaching where it saw it needed to be done, all of that kind of thing. You're living a godly life. But then you come to a realization that not even that is enough. And so you begin to look at the last in Peter's list, and it is love. Love for your brethren, love for everybody. And so they would say the higher you climb, the more you realize that the things below you, the things you have left, the, the, the thing you progress from, is less important. It's just not that important. I mean, 
The faith and the virtue, you almost just take it for granted. But, but it's not that important to focus on that. What is important is to love. And, now I said I'd bring it up, I haven't got it. Situation ethics. So if I'm looking at this like situation ethics, and you know what situation ethics is, what it really means in very simple language is doing the wrong thing when it's right to do it. That's what it really means. So in other words, go back to, you're fat. Don't, don't say that. Tell him he's a nice looking man. You know? Lie to him because lying to him will maybe make him feel better than if you tell him the truth. That situation ethics. Only it gets far more involved than that. Far more involved. All these moral scenarios. When I was in class, you know, they posed all these moral scenarios. Your children are hungry. And you don't have money to feed them. Should you steal food from the grocery store and feed your children or should you not? What is the loving thing to do? And they would get in all of this moral debate about... You know, the, uh, the insensitivity and of the laws and on and on and on. And on. even the big corporation of the grocery store, you know, perhaps a big conglomerate or, conglomerate or publicly traded grocery store. And it just really doesn't matter. But your children are hungry and the loving thing to do would be go in there and shoplift and feed your kids. So we got to, you know, we go through all those scenarios and all of that. And... The idea is you pray, progress to the point where you are a good person. But it's not as important to be a good person as it is to be a loving person. And I think you see where all of that's going. And so the ecumenical movement comes in and begins to say, you know, you get people in their immature state of faith get all caught up in fighting about doctrine and you believe this and I believe this. Well, the Bible says this and the Bible says Forget all that. Just be loving. Love one another. And if we love one another, the problems would take care of themselves. That's one view. It's not the one I believe. The second predominant view is the one that I believe, and I'm going to try to go through it quickly here, but you can read it for yourself on the outline. It's what I call a corporate progression to a higher state. In one sense, you still do the same thing. You start with the basic faith. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I respond to that. I confess, I'm baptized, I'm a Christian. And you begin to grow. And you begin to do the things you already know. When I became a Christian, I'm sure I knew things that were right and wrong. I've talked to you about looking in a mirror and saying, you know, Michael, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to stop this, and you got to stop that, and you got to stop the other thing, and you're going to have to do this, and you're going to have to do that. You know, we know those things. But then you grow in knowledge. You add to that. There are a lot of things I didn't know that I had to learn, obviously. And you do fight the battles. I mean, you do exercise self-control, self-restraint, continence, and you also exercise continuance. You lay things down, and you lay them down until they're forever out of your life. You still have to acknowledge it could happen. But you haven't done it in 40 years, and so really, if you just stay the course, you're going to be fine. But then you go beyond that, and you really do more and more and more emulate Jesus Christ. Now, what is the difference in what I just said from the last position? Well, I think it is this. It is not a progression higher up the ladder to get to love and forget all this other stuff. Oh, I mean, you don't forget it, but it's not that important. It's not that. It's more like a cycle that we go through. I mean, really and truly, if we're looking at the list in Second Peter, is there ever a time when my faith shouldn't grow? Is that a one-time thing where I just simply believe in Jesus and that's my faith? 
Or is it that my faith gets stronger and stronger and more mature and incorporates more and more of the knowledge, for example, the experience that I have from Romans 5, so that I more and more and more have a strong faith, so that I can know things beyond a shadow of a doubt in my heart, in my mind. And I think that's the truth. Do I live a good life, but can I be better? Of course we can all be better. And so I'm cycling back to that. Sometimes I'm focusing on that. Maybe today or this week I'm focusing on my Bible. And I'm really reading and really studying and really learning. And maybe next week I kind of redirect my attention to putting, putting it into practice. The virtue, the godliness. And I cycle back to what it really means to be a loving individual. And maybe at one point I think loving God and loving my neighbor means this, but I mature. And I realize sometimes that loving God or loving my neighbor, for example, might be a difficult thing. Because loving my neighbor might not be lying to him and telling him what he wants to hear, but it might be telling him something he doesn't want to hear. But that's love too, is it? And so the idea of an incorporating of all of it all the time, and even focusing on one part of it at times, and another part of it at another time, but the composite, if these things be in you and abound. And I should be able to look back on my life, not like looking down to the bottom of the stairs and finding the first level that's no longer really important, but look back on my life and see a life that incorporated all these things. Maybe not at one time. Maybe not, you know, every facet of every single one of them at one time, but a lifetime of bringing them, of tucking them in, if you will, into my basket so that my basket gets more and more and more full as my time goes on. I hope that makes some sense. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, if you do believe in Jesus, that He's the Son of God, and you will confess that, you are willing to repent, change your life. And tonight you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. You will begin a life in Jesus Christ. And then you'll begin to grow, as we've been talking about tonight. Maybe you're here and you look at your life and you say, you know, I need to refocus. I need to redirect my attention. And I'd like to ask for you to pray together with me tonight. We'd love to do that. Won't you please come? Always dance.